1: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Sunday edition of The Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Are the governing PCs at Queen's Park intent on preventing families who've suffered through the devastation in our long term care homes from having their day in court? For the last couple of weeks, we've been telling you about a proposed amendment to the law that would make it harder to certify class action suits against long-term care home providers. This past week, we found out more upsetting news for families who've lost loved ones to COVID-19. Premier Doug Ford announced his cabinet will consider legislation which would limit the liability of essential service and health care providers like nursing homes during COVID-19. British Columbia and nine U.S. states have gone so far as to specifically limit the liability of nursing homes. We haven't been told very much about what is being considered, but apparently these measures would protect healthcare workers and providers who spread the virus unknowingly while following all emergency and public health protocols. However, immunity would not be given in cases that can be proven to have been grossly negligent. On Thursday, Fightback gathered a panel to discuss the important issue. Libby Snymer spoke with Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. Graham Webb, Executive Director of the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Lawyer Melissa Miller, and Kathy Parks, who lost her father to COVID-19 at Pickering's Orchard Villa.
2: They had announced uh, an outbreak in the home on the 9th, and I spent between the 9th and the 15th um, trying to do everything I could really to get him help or get him out of the home and into the hospital, and uh, I just wasn't permitted. I was sort of blocked at every turn.
3: Kathy, what do you think of this proposed
2: provision covering the liability of nursing homes? Well, you know, I I read the same about uh, B.C. and several of the states in the U.S. And I can understand that there's a concern that if all these homes can't get insurance and they shut down, where will the seniors go? But at the same time, I'm worried that this will be so broad that it will provide loopholes for the for-profit homes to use so that they can protect themselves against being sued for wrongful death, which is exactly what, uh, you know, Melissa and, and I'm doing for and a number of other families. So the specifics would be nice. I'd like to hear exactly what the details are. It seems to me right now to mean protection for for-profit homes, and that concerns me.
3: Melissa Miller, what's your view of this type of a provision, and is there a context, you know, inside the
4: lawsuit that you are launching? It's incredible amounts of backpedaling by the Ford administration in light of, as Kathy said, um, our premier's acknowledgement and how broken our system is. We have absolutely no idea what a bad actor means, what good or bad faith means in the context of this legislation. And that's exactly what lawsuits are for. How do you make that kind of a judgment call in advance? Not all COVID deaths in nursing homes are as a result of negligence. I totally agree with that. But imposing legislation like this is not going to limit the number of lawsuits. It's just making it additionally more difficult for the families that have legitimate cases against these homes. And as Kathy said, protecting our for-profit homes. And I find that extremely, extremely concerning.
3: I'd like to bring in Marissa Lennox. What do you think listening to that?
4: You know, this is a time when emotions are running very high. Families have lost loved ones in long-term care facilities. And the messaging that's coming from the province is that there could potentially be this new immunity protection that may thwart their ability to seek justice. So I understand um, many families uh, rightly having questions about what this means. From Harp's perspective, um, it's critical that whatever decision the province makes here, that um, it not compromise uh, a family's ability to seek justice.
3: Let's bring in Graham Webb from the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. Graham, what do you make of this additional uh, proposed legislation?
5: People want accountability from the long-term care home sector. People are looking for justice and bringing about a law that makes it harder for the families of uh, long-term care home residents to obtain justice is really going against everything that we need in Ontario to correct the long-term care home system.
3: I would like to bring in Donna Duncan. She's the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Association. You say that this provision is necessary, right?
4: Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. And, and, And let me be clear, there there is no doubt. There have been untold losses, uh, and and such a tragedy in this. And and Catherine, I'm so sorry for your loss. This is uh, I, I can't imagine. Um, what what we're trying to do right now as 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 a sector is how do we stabilize right now? We we are at the end of the beginning of this pandemic. This is not the end. Uh, Long term care is becoming uninsurable. So we're really concerned about what happens with if. The four insurance companies who ensure long-term care in Canada decide that they're no longer in that business because if we can't, if we can't have insurance, then, uh, how do we operate? What is being proposed and certainly what we're supporting is, is what uh, was brought in in British Columbia where it's not a universal amnesty at all. There is zero tolerance for abuse and neglect. Families have to have access to due process and, and, and accountability has to be, has to be put in place. Uh, And the premier certainly made a commitment to ensuring that there's going to be accountability. And certainly as an association, um, absolutely zero tolerance for abuse and neglect. And we have to make sure that families will have uh, access to due process and justice.
1: Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. Graham Webb, Executive Director of the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Lawyer, Melissa Miller. And Kathy Parks whose father died with COVID-19 at Pickering's Orchard Villa. And Kathy, we are all very sorry for your loss. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Thursday marked a grim milestone in the pandemic. Canada moved past 100,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19. There is good news. Infection rates have slowed in recent weeks. In late April, the country saw about 1,800 new cases a day. Now we're down to 400 or so Canada-wide. And here in Ontario, we've been below 200 a day for a good week or so. As for the restrictions on our lives, it seems we've gotten used to them. A CAMH survey confirms the number of people who are feeling anxious and depressed has dropped from just over 25% in early May to just over 21% toward the end of May. It's a small change, but researchers say it's important. Joining Libby on Thursday, Dr. Steve Jordans, professor of psychology at the University of Toronto Scarborough, and Dr. Joshua Tepper, president and CEO of North York General Hospital.
6: The the numbers across the province and even now Toronto are starting to improve. uh, And we are fortunately seeing less people in the ICU, less people on ventilators across the province, and overall just less people admitted, which is all good news.
3: Uh huh. And I remember that at the height of things, there were a lot of hospitals that were saying that their emergencies were empty, but yours was not one of those. You were pretty full. What's the situation like there?
6: Yeah, I mean, we were down for a little bit, but it started to come up again. And, you know, I think in some ways that's a good thing. We're starting to see people uh, with more of the lumps and bumps and falls and broken bones, which means that people are getting back out of it, Um, and we're also starting to see more people come in with the heart attacks and strokes that we had seen go down and and worried us because uh, we worried people were not coming in when they needed help. So uh, we're not back to our completely normal volumes, but like others, we've started to see a, a steady shift upwards.
3: Okay, let's bring in Dr. Jordans. Are we getting used to living like this?
7: Well, I mean, certainly part of the original anxiety was the unfamiliar. So so generally, our brain likes to be able to predict how things are going to go. I mean, literally, when you open the door to your house, your brain expects something to be on that other side. Uh, And when COVID first hit, none of us knew what to expect for tomorrow. We didn't know where where this was going. We still don't to some extent, but I think, you know, what was just this wide-scale fear of, of unknown starts to feel a little more familiar to us. We're, we have our feet under us a little bit more about the right ways to behave uh, in this situation, and especially that little light at the end of the tunnel that we're starting to see that that the doctor was just talking about. You know, I think all of those things are making people feel a little more hopeful At this period of time, yeah.
3: Are people getting lockdown fatigue, and how is that playing out? Yeah,
7: I, I I certainly am. (laughs) So, so yeah. I mean, I I think a lot of us do feel that with the complete emptiness of events and everything, our life feels a little blah. Um, You know, it just does. It's not punctuated by the normal markers that we have that kind of tell us we're we're going through life in a certain way. Um, And so, I think a lot of people are very hungry to have something approaching, you know, a a summer where we have events and we. have things to do. Um, I also think, though, that this is this is a critical time that, you know, we're, we're all going to be tempted to, to bend a lot of these rules, but the longer we can hold on, I, I always encourage people to think about the very beginning of this virus, where we heard things like you know, if we'd went into lockdown a week or two earlier, it would have translated into, you know, potentially hundreds of lives saved. I think the same thing holds now. If it, The longer we can hold on to these restrictions, um, we're just ultimately going to be saving some lives and, and getting back to uh, a more permanent new normal rather than having to backtrack.
3: Joshua, what are you seeing? Are people relaxing and perhaps relaxing too much? Um, we're definitely,
6: you know, it's, Hard to say within the hospital. Within the hospital, we're very, very vigilant. Uh, we continue to use PPE very appropriately. Uh, we're incredibly cautious with, uh, how visitors come in and how they're appropriately using masks. So within the hospital, I think, uh, you know, we, and our long-term care homes, we're, we're really remaining vigilant. Uh, but, uh, you know, out and about in society, I, I, you know, I, I think we do worry and I, I certainly agree we, we need to remain uh, very cautious. I think some of the data coming out of certain states in, in the U.S. in the last week are very concerning. I think Texas, you know, thousands of new cases a day, same with Florida and other places. So I think, um, you know, we can look south for some examples of what we do not want our curve to start to look like. And uh, that's not intended as a criticism, just as something that we need to uh, be pretty mindful of here and, and remain careful about physical distancing, uh, wearing masks, and hand hygiene. Dr. Tepper,
3: I'm going to give you the last word. What do you want to tell people about how to keep going with this uh, since everybody's telling us it may get worse?
6: Yeah, I think just continue to, to do the things for your physical health, um, such as wearing masks, hand hygiene, avoid touching your face, and physical distancing, and also pay attention to the, your mental wellness as well, and uh, that can be exercise, uh, that can be social connections, that can be meditation, uh, but be mindful of both things that your body's under stress for right now.
1: Dr. Joshua Tepper, president and CEO of North York General Hospital, and Dr. Steve Jordans, professor of psychology at the University of Toronto Scarborough. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. On Friday, more areas of the province were allowed to enter stage two of the COVID-19 economic recovery plan. But those of us who live in Toronto, Peel, or Windsor-Essex will have to wait a while longer. This past Monday, just before the premier announced that Durham, York and Halton regions would be allowed to reopen restaurant patios, hair salons, malls and swimming pools. Libby spoke with Ryan Malo at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Newmarket Mayor John Taylor and Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie.
4: The decision has to be one to open or not reopen based in science and in evidence. So if it means we have to wait another week or a few more days, then so be it. Uh, What am I hearing from businesses? They're getting ready. I'm encouraging them to get ready. Outdoor restaurants uh, and retail, et cetera, are getting prepared. What about that issue,
3: especially if it's a business like a hairdresser and they lose their clients who are going to go next door to get their haircut and then don't need another one for (laughs) at least a month? Uh, are, Are businesses worried that they are going to be
4: disadvantaged? Well, of course I suppose they are. I mean, I've been sending the message to buy local Mississauga made support our friends, our neighbors, et cetera, and their local businesses. And you and I both know we all have our favorite hair and nail salon. And I'm encouraging people to wait and support your local businesses. And uh if it only means another week, we've waited 14 weeks now Libby so another week or a few more days hopefully won't won't matter too much
3: mayor Taylor uh, where do you stand with this and what does it mean for you that you're likely to reopen
8: I asked our um, medical officer of health uh, just late last week in a meeting um, if we were to be announced to be moving to phase two uh, today um, you know according to what his understanding is of uh, our landscape and our numbers in York region if he would support that or he'd support and he said he would he did he does support it and would support it um, but having said that, you know, the town of Newmarket always takes the approach that once we're, uh, once the uh, uh, provincial uh, directions or permission is granted in areas, we then, um, you know, take the appropriate time we need to move in those directions, ensuring that we can feel that we've put the safety measures in place, uh, we often put in signage in place. And so sometimes it takes a little longer for us to do it, but we, we decided long ago we are going to move cautiously and carefully and put health and safety first.
3: Ryan Malo, uh, what do you think of that
6: kind of a timetable? We did hear from the regions that opened last week that they were experiencing that uh, clientele boost from outside of the region. I heard a, a tattoo parlor a little further up north. Two-thirds of their clients were uh, were based in Toronto, and for them, that's positive. Um, I do feel for some of the services that are in Peel and Toronto uh, in particular, though, because if you are, for example, a hairdresser in Mississauga, and your clients can now go to Oakville, but not to you, um, to get a haircut, you're going to be in a little bit of a tight spot. So it's it's good news for those regions that can open. It's going to be a little bit frustrating, though, for those that are still closed. Um, although, as the mayor noted, I think that the uh, province, too, is taking a health-first approach, and we do still need to uh, put the health and safety of everyone as the number one concern.
3: I thought the idea was that you weren't supposed to go to the jurisdiction next door to get a a service, and and I thought that maybe businesses on the other end would be taking addresses or something like that. John, what do you think of the prospect of people coming from Toronto to Newmarket and possibly bringing with them COVID-19? I
8: I respect the province. has got a tough position trying to figure that out and trying to put a a process in place where people have to collect address. I mean, a lot of these businesses are stressed enough just trying to figure out how to operate in COVID-19 and with, you know, with an added layer of having to figure out where people are from, et cetera. I think monitoring it, looking at what's gone on first in places like Bradford and Barry, um, you know, we can watch what goes on here next, but if it's not too overwhelming, uh, there's, there's people coming, you know, from one community to another now, visiting family, visiting friends. And and that does happen um, with a one, what would look like a one week period where, You know, a place like York Region will be open prior to others. I think is uh, is you know not too long a period either. Uh, many of them will be uh, you know, places like uh, tattoo parlors and hair places Well, they'll have a long list of their current clients who will, I'm sure, be uh, on a waiting list.
1: Newmarket Mayor John Taylor, Ryan Malo at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie. They were in conversation with Libby Snymer this past Monday, just ahead of official word that Toronto, Peel, and Windsor-Essex would stay in Stage 1. This coming Monday, tomorrow, we will find out if these regions will move into stage 2 on Friday the 26th. I'm Jane Brown and this is Zoomer Radio's best of fight back. This past week, Canada lost out on a temporary seat on the UN Security Council. Prior to the decision, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had spoken with more than 60 national leaders from Senegal to Spain and Uganda to Ukraine in his bid to beat either Ireland or Norway for one of two remaining seats. Canada last had a seat on the Security Council in 2000 and lost a previous bid under the Conservative government and Stephen Harper in 2010. Ahead of Wednesday's decision, Libby Snymer was joined by Dr. David Carman, professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and Jonathan Berkshire Miller, deputy director and senior fellow at McDonald laurier Institute.
9: I think that the Trudeau government has uh, placed a, a large uh, priority on the multilateral agenda and that's not necessarily a bad thing. So I mean, you know, the UN Security Council continues to be a prestigious forum. The challenge is, and I think this is kind of the point that uh, that I'd like to make is the trade-offs that we we have from this. So obviously you reference some of the the dealings with bilaterally with certain states be it in Africa or elsewhere where we have to kind of compromise our our interests and our ideals uh, to secure votes. But what I'm perhaps even more concerned about is that The multilateral space has become quite diffuse in the past uh, 10 years, say. Um, And while the UN um, continues to be an important voice, I think expending too much capital and too much, um, not just money, but basically diplomatic time on the UN versus other forms, I think, has its trade-offs. So. If you, just to name a few, uh, you know, Canada's also involved in the G7, the G20. Uh, regionally, we're involved uh, in the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation for Asia, uh, in addition to other forms. So, uh, if we're focusing too much of our efforts uh, and expecting returns uh, through the UN Security Council, I worry uh, what what cost that might have to our uh, engagements uh, more broadly.
3: Dr. Carment?
5: There's a lot at stake here for the Liberal government. Uh it's not just that there's a multilateral agenda that Canada would like to be uh, involved in and see reinvigorated. It's it's partly very much tied into the Liberal brand. Uh they Trudeau came to power in 2015 in accusing the Harper government of having fa- failed to live up uh uh to uh the Canadian commitment to uh, multilateralism when they last uh made an effort to get a seat on the security council in 2010 and failed to do so. Uh, This was an opportunity for for Justin Trudeau to point out that the 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 Harper government just didn't have what it takes. So there's a a lot on the line for Trudeau, not just uh, the multilateral agenda, but also his own personal brand. He's put a lot on the table of his, his own personal commitments, but he's also personalized the the agenda, so to speak, by associating the the willingness and the ability of Canada to make a difference in the world with his own personal uh contributions to that. So if this goes badly, uh then I think uh, there's a real loss here for Trudeau's brand. Uh, more specifically, uh, the question of whether it makes uh it will make a difference in, the, in in the way in which we engage in the world is open 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 to question.
9: Yeah, this is a personal issue for this government as well, and I think from the foreign policy side, there haven't been many victories uh, for the Trudeau administration, and, and in fact, actually, there have been a lot of failures at the bilateral level and also at the multilateral level. If you if you think about Uh, The India trip, uh, Trudeau was uh, going to China, hoping for a free trade agreement. We know where that relationship's headed. And then also, uh, as someone who focuses and spends a lot of time in East Asia, uh, many who uh, in East Asia remember Trudeau uh, and his minister not showing up at the TPP uh, uh, potential signature in Vietnam. Eventually we did get that deal across, but still, uh, you know, the reason I bring these out is that uh, another foreign policy failure uh, such as not getting the UNCC would uh, would be quite damning to this government.
5: There's some doubt as to whether the UN Security Council is going to be the, the vehicle or the mechanism for advancing that agenda, given, as you say, the opposition within the Security Council itself, but also the fact the United States is now walking away from a lot of UN Agencies, including the WHO, UNESCO, and more recently, it's uh, sanction, it's threatening to sanction the International Criminal Court, which was a liberal signature brand policy initiative. I think what we will not see is this effort to uh, introduce a geopolitical agenda in the Security Council, because as you say, there's little traction there, which raises questions as to whether, which was suggested at the very first. Comment was whether this is the best venue for achieving that kind of uh, that kind of uh, outcome,
1: Dr. David Carment, Professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and Jonathan Berkshire Miller, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute. They were in conversation with Libby Snymer ahead of the decision against Canada in gaining a temporary seat on the U.N. Security Council. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones.
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Natalie in Scarborough, who phoned our Zoomer squad to say she's scheduled a visit to see her mother, who's in a nursing home, in good health and about to turn 100. Thank God.
3: Thank so, goodness. She must miss you. Oh, she does. But, you know, what? I call her every day.
7: We talk all the time. Has the nursing home been helpful in in arranging this?
4: Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're really, really excellent, and um, they really will do anything for their... The people in the home.
3: We're happy for you that you're able to see Thank your mom. You. Thank you very much. And please call back after you see her and let us know how it all went. I will. Thank you.
1: That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636 416-367-9636 I'm Jane Brown Join me again next weekend when we'll round up The Best of Fight Back
0: The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham